And so what we're doing when we tell our stories a little at a time across time is we're letting that child who's growing into a man or a woman, we're letting that child's limbic brain know you're not crazy, your smeller isn't off, and here's the story you have known but haven't known. Hey, this is Dana Gresh. And this is Bob Gresh. And that was my counselor, Phil Herndon. So, Dana, our goal today is to get the conversation started in this brief episode, which was really kind of conceived out of Dana's mind when she said this on our Zoom call to Phil. Lots of people are writing and saying, should we tell our kids what's going on with this whole trauma in our lives? And if so, at what age? Like, how do you advise people about that? That's a very common question. And I tell them that they know I've worked with, matter of fact, this morning, I worked with a man sitting right over here on my couch um, who grew up and when his dad, now this man was in his probably 30s or 40s when this happened, when his dad admitted, his mom and dad began to talk in their senior adult years about his multiple affairs, uh, this guy sitting on my couch said, I always knew something was off. So you'll hear that phrase a lot. I always knew something was off. It just didn't feel right. Hey there. Welcome to the Happily Even After podcast, where you'll hear a story of a husband and wife who did not ride off into the sunset, but found themselves fighting a man's fierce battle with lust and pornography. Bob and Dana Gresh are raw, real, and honest. Their guests are wise experts in the work of marriage recovery. Some have degrees in therapy or psychology. One of the things I like to, to describe about us as, as children is that little kids are great observers, but lousy historians. <laughs> they saw what happened, experienced what happened, but so often we get it wrong as kids. Others have learned their lessons on the hot pavement of life. The church that the kids are so soaking in on the daily is their home address. They'll help you explore seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Oh, and by the way, you can live happily even after. Here's Bob Gresh. Dana, we've reached 20,000 listeners. Oh, I have news for you. You do? It's over 21,000. Mm. <laughs> we've grown a little since we last checked those numbers. And what's amazing, that's only like in a couple months. Um, definitely one of the fastest growing podcasts we've ever launched. So that's really exciting. And what's really cool is that, I don't know, this is me geeking out, I guess, but 75% of our listeners are listening to 75% or more of the podcast, which means they're not turning it off. That's a key fact there, because when people come to me and say, hey, we've had 30,000 visitors to our website, I always say, let's just divide that by 10, because people <laughs> are just going by it. But when you see the statistics so that they're listening to 75% of it, yeah. I think that's probably your 75%, and they're not listening to the 25% <laughs> I'm in it. Not true. All right. So we're going to dive into today's topic. But before that, if you like what you're learning, we have a special invitation for you. That's right. We want you to give your marriage the gift of connection 
We're inviting you to get away with one goal, experience greater friendship while being equipped to live in the power of God's redemption. Listen, no marriage remains neutral every day. We're either growing in friendship or we're drifting apart. So we want to invite you to take some time to grow in your friendship. Join me and Bob and our marriage counselor, Pete Kuyper, for the Living Happily Even After Couples Weekend this September 21st to the 24th. We're packing our bags for this refueling weekend in the beautiful Dominican Republic. Yes. This weekend is kind of a cost-effective way of getting a dose of Pete Kuiper. You're going to hear some of the great teaching that Pete taught us, biblical teaching when we were working through our stuff. We would just love to have you be a part of it. It's happening September 21st to 24th, 2023 at Casa de Campo Resort in the Dominican Republic. Um, You're just going to love it. You're going to get to connect with other couples who've been through similar experiences, and you're just going to get some great connecting time, which goes a long way in the healing journey. And very importantly, everybody that comes, every couple that comes, gets a golf cart to drive around in. You're pretty excited about that Any vacation where you get to drive a golf cart around is a pretty good deal. And there's also a beach, a spa, yeah, golf course. All this kind of stuff. Thing, so. Yep. Visit danagresh.com and click on the word workshops. You'll find all the information you need there to apply and join us. Okay. Let's start to answer this question. Should you tell your kids about what you're walking through as a couple? We're going to start by talking with Phil Herndon, Bob's current Christian counselor. Phil's on the team at River Tree Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Now, you might recall from the last episode that Bob likes to smack talk Phil about the cost of counseling. Uh, it's, it's expensive. It's, it's now, it's not as expensive rude. as he says it is, because <laughs> he, t- he doesn't do the math well. But. Yeah, okay. Well, here's more from the ridiculous beginning to that conversation with Phil. And you're going to hear the beautiful voice of our very beloved friend, Aubrey, who helps me day in and day out with all the stuff we prepare to minister to your heart. Phil's so expensive, I can't afford to have any seconds lost. <laughs> wow. Okay. 30 seconds. New record. Fantastic. Susie, say that every time? Uh, every time. <laughs> he he calculates by the minute. He goes, oh, well, that just cost me 11 bucks or whatever. I do. I do. So here's the thing that happens when we eat out every single time when we eat out. Do you know what I'm going to say, Aubrey? Do you know what Bob does when we get the check? He has to lament the cost because Bob's restaurant spending muscles exist in the 1970s. I went to Chick-fil-A oh, the other day. Every spending muscle of Bob's brain exists in that time. <laughs> I went to Chick-fil-A the other day. I was trying to eat healthy. I got a salad and a cup of soup and a drink, and it cost $17.87. <laughs> and I've heard that story six times since you went to Chick-fil-A last week. <laughs> well, and I'm going to hear it until Christmas. Hey, don't worry. We talked about more than the prices at Chick-fil-A, which are actually, can we just say we love (laughs) Chick-fil-A? Last week, I actually drove through twice and asked, are the peach milkshakes in yet? Are they? No, they're not in yet. So do me a favor. If you're listening to this during peach milkshake season, drive through Chick-fil-A and have one for me. Okay. Back to our conversation with Phil. This is interesting because he introduced us to something we kind of felt but didn't know what to call it. Right. It's called limbic resonance. And it's basically the limbic part of our brain reading the emotional state of the room. Yeah. Or another person. Right. And 
it's really fascinating and it helps us to understand why it might be important for some of us to talk to our kids about what's going on. Now, to get the context of this conversation, we need to play the part of the conversation where Bob was talking to Phil about some of the physical challenges I experienced in the process of our redemption journey. And I'm about to have a eureka moment of understanding. Let's listen. One of the reasons I confessed is I was seeing it hurt Dana's physical being. Yes. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This can't be happening. But it happened in such a timed way. Uh, when I was acting out and I come home and see her, that I thought, this is spiritual. But science does back that up, right? Yeah, science does back it up, Bob. It's, I read a fascinating, matter of fact, I wrote a paper about it for an organization. I read a fascinating research at San Francisco State University. They took babies who were born blind. They literally could not see a thing. And they presented mom's face to the baby and mom smiled. The baby smiled and they weren't smiling because they saw mom's face smile. They felt it. Mm. It was limbic. It was relational. It was God's wiring of human beings to be able to relate to one another. And certainly marriage is the most intimate of relationships. Scripture, Genesis 2 tells us that we're one flesh. And so for, for Dana's body, in this case, Dana's body to be exhibiting the symptomology of sickness makes perfect sense when you think about how God has made us to relate to one another. And so it's a truly limbic experience. We talk about limbic resonance, like I can walk in and my wife, Sheila, if something is going on with her and she's in some form of uh, uh, pain of some kind, it's not just a look at her face, which is called limbic regulation. It's the feel of the room called limbic resonance. And how many times have I heard wives say, I just felt something was off, Hmm. felt it. And that's what you're describing, Bob. It's like Dana was feeling, pun intended, literally feeling the effects of how sick in that sin you had become. And she was picking up on that in the same way those blind babies are picking up on mom's smile. It's relational. Limbic resonance. I've never heard that term before. Yeah, limbic resonance is, is like the environment we grow up in. Think about it. This is kind of a gross example, but think about it in terms of secondhand cigarette smoke. Mm. You walk into a room, you are breathing the air that room has in it. And we do that relationally. You walk into a room and go, wow, something has really gone down in here. This room is tense. That's called limbic resonance. Think about how we breathe the literal air <clears throat> in the homes we grow up in. We're also breathing the limbic air we're growing up in. Hmm. And so these children are raised. You've seen, maybe your own kids did it. A a kid will often go into a room where mom and dad have been really at each other. It's really tense. And they hear the kid coming. And so they stop talking and the kid will come in and go, everything okay? Everything all right in here? They're feeling it. Hmm. Resonance of the room. Well, you bring up an interesting topic because lots of people are writing and saying, should we tell our kids what's going on with this whole trauma in our lives? And if so, at what age? Like, how do you advise people about that? That's a very common question. And 
I tell them that they know I've worked with, matter of fact, this morning, I worked with a man sitting right over here on my couch um, who grew up and when his dad, now this man was in his probably 30s or 40s when this happened, when his dad admitted, his mom and dad began to talk in their senior adult years about his multiple affairs, uh, this guy sitting on my couch said, I always knew something was off. So you'll hear that phrase a lot. I always knew something was off. It just didn't feel right. Dad was at my games or whatever. And I say to them, when a child begins to enter puberty and begins to recognize their own sexuality, those are times when you have, and, and again, it's contextualized, but I will often say this needs to be thought of in terms of a series of conversations, mm. not just one big one and then it's kind of done. Everybody kind of leaves and pretends like it never happened. These are ongoing conversations about healthy sexuality, part of which is letting them know you're not crazy, even if you didn't say this out loud. I know you've been feeling this in our home because I've been sitting on a secret or a series of secrets, and you had to have been feeling that because of the resonance in our home. And so what we're doing when we tell our stories a little at a time, across time, is we're letting that child who's growing into a man or a woman, we're letting that child's limbic brain know you're not crazy, your smeller isn't off, and here's the story you have known but haven't known. The story you've known but haven't known. What an eloquent way to describe it. That was my eureka moment because as children, we observe and remember things that we don't always understand. Yeah, and that reminds me of something Pete Kuyper, our friend, mentor, counselor in the past, taught us. One of the things I like to to describe about us as, as children is that little kids are great observers but lousy historians. <laughs> They saw what happened, experienced what happened, but so often we get it wrong as kids. Dan and I first heard Pete say that when we were doing our intensive with him, which was a two-week intensive at Crossroads Counseling of the Rockies, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, you may recall from episode one that Pete taught us about our behaviors and how they are like icebergs. What's above the surface, our behaviors, is just the tip of the iceberg, right, Dan? Right. And deep below the surface, at the bottom of our iceberg which we don't often see or other people don't see, That's is right. our belief system. Our belief system. So our behaviors are up top. Our belief system is the core of it. And from a Christian perspective, our beliefs are either true or false. So there's no in between. Yeah. And here's the thing. False beliefs, lies, are the common denominator in all of our sin, destructive behavior, and addiction. And when we recently chatted with Pete about our own redemption story on Zoom, We talked a bit about how our children fare when they're caught up in, I guess, with our new language, the limbic resonance of their parents' marriage trauma. So Pete explained that when a child goes through a trauma or even detects one and doesn't have help understanding it, he or she often begins to believe a lie about themselves, their family, their world, or even God. And if we don't get a course correction, we're going to continue to believe it into adult life. And so an unresolved past finds its way into the present, uh, usually in disguise. So we don't we don't realize where it's coming from and why I'm acting the way I'm acting and 
and so on. So again, going back to, to paying attention to what I had bought into and believed to be true as a, as a child. And some of those core false beliefs are just so um, difficult to challenge because they feel so normal. Yeah. Well, one, one of them for me was the lie at the deep bottom of my iceberg. I don't belong. I do not belong. And I would have never told you, I believe that lie because I'm a leader. I'm usually leading the group I'm in. So why wouldn't I belong? But it, and it wasn't stopping me from functioning, but I was a bit hobbled and I wasn't enjoying belonging. Right. And then when I, really trace that back. When did this start? I was like four years old when my brother was deathly ill Mm. and I was passed from family to family, you know, aunts, grandmas. And, um, I remember vividly visiting with an aunt or a grandma, my mom, my dad, and the baby in the hospital, but I was not old enough to be allowed in the hospital. So I looked up about three stories to, the hospital room where my mom was holding the baby and they were waving at me. Mm. And I realized I believed the lie. Then I don't belong there. And if I don't belong there, how can I belong here, wherever here is. And then when I started to identify this and how it had impacted me through the years, I had a girlfriend say, well, do you feel like you belong at work? The ministry that you started? Not really. Do you feel like you belong in our friend group? Not really. Do you feel like you belong in your family? Not really. Do you feel like you belong in your marriage? Hmm. Not really. Hmm. So what right did I have to speak into Bob's brokenness or be a part of it? I didn't really belong. Hmm. And I had to heal that to be an active member of the fight that we were in together. Mm-hmm. And until I did, we didn't, I didn't even, I didn't feel like I was winning. Yeah. But that was my iceberg. That was the bottom of my iceberg. Yeah. I want to affirm that because when Dana left, she was one of those introverts that says, I get all my energy from being alone. <laughs> I st- all I do. of it. I get a lot of energy. And I get it. I know that's the <laughs> definition of introvert. But um, when she got back, I guess technically she was still an introvert, but she was a people person. She, yeah. You were like hanging out after church for a long time, <laughs> yeah. more than me as an extrovert was hanging I around. I felt like I belonged. Yeah. So, <laughs> it was really cool. But it changed you yeah. 180 to, degrees. To identify that lie and replace it with God's truth. It was amazing. Yeah. And here's something Pete and I talked about in the counseling room. He actually thought I should be more messed up than I was by what I'd experienced. (laughs) But by that, I mean, um, by virtue of my parents having to juggle work to pay bills and hospital and medical care for a very sick baby, I experienced a lack of them. That was a trauma in my early years. And Pete wanted to make sure I was dealing with it thoroughly. So he dug deep. And at the end, he asked me this. When you were being passed around from aunt to aunt and grandma to grandma, did anyone ever take time to talk to you about how sad that whole thing might be making you feel? And immediately I was like, yes, my mom. She was, uh, there were these memories that she was just like, uh, 
checking in to see if I was sad. It's like your mom's a saint. She's sort of saintly. (laughs) But she was telling me how much she missed me when she'd been away from me at the hospital. She was affirming that it was okay for both of us to miss each other and to feel sadness. And even years down the road, I can remember my mom would say sometimes something like, I'm so sorry for that time. I know how much it hurt you. And when Pete heard that, he said, oh, that's fantastic. Well, your mother was functioning as an empathic witness. Of course, I didn't know what that was. He explained that an empathic witness is someone who helps a child process difficult experiences. And when we have one, an empathic witness, the lies don't get to take root in the same powerful way. So they're easier to pull up when we do realize that they're there and they don't cause as much damage. Yeah, that's why we've devoted the last 20 years of our ministry to connecting people. Mm -hmm. If it's a man stuck in porn, to connecting him with other men that can help him. If it's a father of a tween, mother of a tween, it's putting them in the driver's seat of the communication. So for us, the question isn't, should we talk to our kids about the trauma that's happening in their own home, but how and when? This podcast is brought to you by Pure Freedom and Moody Publishers. Here's Bob Gresh. Now, when we're talking about disclosure, this is a great time to mention that not everyone agrees with us on this. Right, Dana? Right. So some will tell you not to talk to your kids about the trauma at all, um, and others will kind of go our way. Yeah. So when I was working on this episode, I asked my social media followers for their opinions. And first of all, I got to say, very few people responded. When I ask for comments on my social media, it like blows up. And I asked for some advice on this, and it was like... Crickets. Crickets, yes. But some of them that responded said, you know, they were adamantly opposed to telling kids. One wrote, please don't tell your kids. She went on to explain that she discovered her dad's problem with porn when she was a teenager. And she still remembers the details of that discovery and says afterwards it was just brushed under the so rug. So she kind of discovered the dad. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. rough. It was very rough. And she felt that remained a wedge between her and her dad for a very long time. Bob, what would you say if you had the chance to talk to that woman? Well, that'd be a hard conversation, but the dad has to talk to her. Yeah. I think the fact that it was brushed under the rug probably did as much damage as what she discovered. Absolutely. And it it hurts my heart to think about this exact situation, but you got to address it. As hard as that would be for a man, Mm -hmm. you got to do what you got to do. Right. Um, Another person commented that they had chosen not to tell their kids when infidelity occurred, hoping it would pass and they could heal. But now they're in the middle of a divorce. And Mm. the one with the sex addiction, who was the husband, Mm. filed for divorce and told the kids, your mother wants a divorce. (laughs) And it's just more lies because... This wife is still feeling like she cannot betray the real reason for the divorce to the kids or it will only devastate them further. She desires for her kids to have a relationship with their dad, and she doesn't want to mess that up. And I can't say that I actually know what to tell her. Um, I don't know her circumstances well enough. I don't know her kids. I don't know her kids' ages. Um, She needs a lot of wise counsel. Yeah, and that answer is not in the book. Right. Right? It's not in the book. It no. is from wise counsel, from the Holy Spirit, from the scriptures. That's where the answer is. Yeah. But again, as for me and Dana, 
we've always felt that transparency and vulnerability is a top priority. And so we think as much as you can share with your kids with discretion, you you should. should. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the conversations need to be age appropriate. We went through a hard time when our kids were in elementary school and we told them, mommy and daddy are having a hard time, but we love each other and we love you. If you feel sad because of what we're going through, we feel sad too. We want you to know that it's okay to be sad. You're not wrong to feel that way. And then we checked in on them to see how they were doing. So we weren't disclosing a lot of details to them, just that we were having a hard time. Yeah, and, and the details change you know, from couple to couple. In fact, our friends Wade and Amy Harris, who are in the book, mm-hmm. they're the ones with the black sofa from episode four. They took a different approach to the whole thing. Our kids were really young, and um, so Wade and I decided to just shield them and protect them from what we were walking through because we didn't want them to carry that burden and put that on them. And so we kind of talked about like once they were adults or when they were married or getting married or at some point in their life, we would kind of just tell them our story and um, bring them into that. And so we had the opportunity to do that um, as our son was getting married and met with him and his fiance and shared about our before we shared about our marriage, I said to my son, like, how would you describe like our marriage? You know, just kind of asking the premarital counseling things like, what did you think of our marriage growing up? And he was like, well, I always knew you loved each other. Like I never doubted ever my whole time that you loved each other. And he's like, I just thought I had a good life and I had a good set of parents that loved each other and spent time together. And I was like, perfect. Like, you know, I didn't want my kids to have to uh, walk through that. So we made the choice to kind of shield them. And, um, but he was, um, thankful that we shared and his fiance was thankful and, um, loved Wade, embraced Wade, absolutely affirmed Wade. And um, we're just like, I think just saw like the power of them, of him realizing like he had no idea um, had always just seen the love um, between us. <laughs> What's that feel like, Wade? Um, I think it was just another moment of redemption um, to have um, him across the table to share with him the depths of our my sin and um, for them to just say, man, we love you. Um, and then the next day received a text that was just like, man, I always love you no matter what. Um, you're my dad. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually we did sit down with our kids as young adults too, and took them out for, I think Thai food. Thai Co- food? Cozy Thai. Are you sure? I think it was pizza. I remember I pizza. I remember Cozy Thai. Oh, okay. But I could be wrong. Sounds very comforting. And cozy we, thai. basically the, the point is, we've mm-hmm. told them that now that you're older, we want to tell you a little bit more about our story and how it unfolded. Yeah, I'm glad we did that. We kind of looked at it as a way of, I don't know, like vaccinating them against it happening in their life if they could understand what happened in ours. And um, that was a hard night, but I would say it was also a sweet night. Yeah, it was a sweet night. And I like what Phil said earlier on about telling our stories a little at a time across time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be spilled out all at once, but there eventually does need to be an honest, authentic acknowledgement about the hard stuff that they have been put into. Yeah. 
um, so your children know they're not crazy. And there's actually a, a recovery term called crazy making, mm-hmm. which is how the wife or husband of a addict gets to feeling because they know that something's wrong, but they can't figure it out. Yeah. And actually, as we listened to this whole talk about limbic resonance, I thought, oh, we can crazy make our kids too. Sure. If they think there's, you know, trauma in the air and then they don't get told there is or they're denied, they're told everything's fine, everything's okay. You can make them crazy. You know, Bob, there's one more thing that I think factors into our decision about how and when to talk to our kids about this, and that is the sad awareness that they too might struggle with pornography. 90% of boys and 60% of girls, which is way higher than it was when we started, Mm -hmm. um, confessed to viewing porn. Yeah. Now that doesn't, don't freak out because that doesn't mean that your kid is addicted to porn or actively using it or even has used it more than once. Um, It's just that that is the percentage who have probably seen it or fallen into it uh, at least once. We know that the across all age ranges, it's a little bit different. The numbers are 70% of men have viewed porn and 30% of women have viewed porn. Um, but listen, this is teens at the height of their sexual curiosity and interest when it's all brand new and they have all kinds of questions. Um, this is a problem and it's, mm-hmm. I would say, ubiquitous, like it's everywhere. You have to ask yourself, when did the problem start? And the research indicates that the average age, the first time a person sees porn is 12. Bob, remind me, remind us again how old you were? I was 13. Yeah. So my friend and psychologist, uh, Julie Slattery, says it's probably more like nine years old is the average today, but the stats aren't telling us that. She's even counseled adults who started much younger than yeah, that. Yeah. When I was young, you had to seek out porn. Yeah. You know, it was in magazines and you know, uh, it was hard to get to if you were young. Now porn is chasing them down. And we think that silence on this topic really only increases the risk. So as part of releasing Happily Even After, we hosted that online parenting workshop titled How to Talk to Your Kids About Pornography. Mm -hmm. And um, it featured Chris McKenna, who's created an organization called Protect Young Eyes, which I love. Mm -hmm. Um, He says we need to make porn the norm. And let's see what he meant by that. I want to rob the enemy of his curiosity power over our children when it comes to this subject. I think that's a great strategy, a great strategy. And I heard both of you, you know, refer to the issue of shame. And I I know, Dana, you're going to get into this a little bit in a little while here, where you're going to point to some other more tangible ways to maybe create that safe bridge between parents and children. We talk about building bridges of digital trust at Protect Young Eyes. And so this is one of these questions, right? What's the right age that often comes up? And when I ask parents this in the hundreds of presentations that we do, and they always have a note-taking guide, I have them write down a number. And if you're you know, doing that, maybe think to yourself, what is a, a number as you're watching this? And then what I'll say is whatever number you have in your head or you've written down, subtract two, and that's probably the right number. Because what we often do is we try to get as close to when we think they're going to need it. 
And, you know, as we saw in the video, and as you've already alluded to, pornography is a super normal stimulus, right? It preys on ways in which God has wired our brain to feel a strong sense of connection due to the intimacy with our spouse, right? It adheres us in that one plus one equals one sort of God math that only he could come up with. But pornography mimics some of those same sort of supernormal neurological responses. And so I want us to have years of conversation before we think our child might be confronted with that porn exposure. One reason I talked to my son about porn is because I didn't want him to feel alone when he felt tempted by it. Because listen to me, your son is going to struggle with this at some point. And most likely your daughter will too. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, when we started, that wasn't necessarily the case. Right. But now it is. And in fact, I heard a survey from Crew. Uh, they surveyed one of their big campuses and 100% of the ministry leaders in their ministry said they were battling porn. And those are the leaders. Yeah. So it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. So if we don't talk about it, you know, we make our kids feel all alone and isolated and loneliness only compounds the problem. And I want to say something that will probably sound controversial. So hear me out. The primary goal of parenting is not to raise sexually pure kids. Hmm. Like that's not what it's all about. Don't let your own brokenness become an obsession for your kids not to know the same pain that you've known. Jesus told us the primary goal of parenting when he gave us the Great Commission. In Matthew uh, 28, he says, Go, make disciples, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is the purpose of every Christian who has ever lived. And for parents, that means the primary goal of parenting is that it's our mission field. Our mission for the Great Commission starts in our homes. Our primary mission field is the hearts of our children. Yeah. So don't become overly focused on morality, which again, hear our heart on this. Don't make the mistake of putting morally acceptable behavior before the love of Jesus. Right. And what does the Bible tell us is the picture of his love for us? Marriage. And that brings it full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And here's our friend Mike Bivens to explain that just a little bit more. Well, that's that's how we're referred to. You know, we're the bride of Christ. And so it it really does center me back into the day when I watched her daddy walk her down the aisle, you know, and, um, you know, it doesn't mean she's a high energy individual as well. <laughs> and and so our force fields, they still they still friction up. I promise you that, man. I don't ever want to mislead anyone. But what we've what we have captured in the moments are just things like that along the way and going, man, I'm just going to, that little brown eyed girl right there, there is no one else for me. So she is my bride. And so what I'm doing now, especially when my girls were, were uh, in the house is that they were looking to see what their future husband looks like. Mm. And then my son was looking to see what his future bride looks like. And so they would, you know, and I tell people, you can usher folks into any kind of worship barn you want, but the church they're looking at is their address. They want to see how grace and mercy and empowerment of Christ is lived out on the daily through the friction. I mean, if I tell people, if there's not help, if there's not conflict in your relationships, then somebody's hiding or, hiding or lying. 
man, there just has to be healthy conflict. And that's the key word is being healthy. That's the interesting thing to me is that we do know couples that don't, maybe they have conflict, but maybe they just don't argue. They just seem so relaxed or maybe we just don't know what's going on. Yeah. You don't know what goes on when that door closes at night, guys. I love the term that the church that they're looking. What'd you say again? The church that they're seeing. Yeah. The church that the kids are soaking in on the daily is their home address. That's great. Well, that's this episode of the Happily Even After limited series podcast with Bob and Dana Gresh. Be sure to check out the show notes at danagresh.com. If you don't already have a copy of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage, get one anywhere you like to buy books. Episodes one through seven of this podcast support key chapters in that book. They contain conversation prompts to explore the seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Well, should you talk to your kids about what's going on in your marriage? That's your decision. But hopefully this episode has given you some food for thought. Yeah, and as we've been doing the podcast, Anna, we realize there's a thousand different iterations of what is happening in people's marriage, right? Yeah. Um, there's abuse. There's men that won't admit to what they're doing. There's all kinds of stuff. There's toddlers in the house. There's college students in the house. There's so many factors. So we didn't get into a lot of the details of what you should say, when you should say it, how you should say it, uh, all that kind of stuff. We just think it's a really important conversation for you to have as a couple. And if one of you isn't willing to have that conversation, go get wise counsel from someone. Um, In fact, get wise counsel if you are both willing to talk about it, because you can always benefit from that. Absolutely. The Happily Even After podcast is written by Bob and Dana Gresh. Original music and production by Blake Bratton. And thanks to Moody Publishers for underwriting this episode. Here's what's up next time. So here's a hard thing. And women are asking me this question all the time. Uh, They're having a hard time with competing with what he has seen in pornography and they can't mentally get past that to enjoy being naked again in their own bed what advice do you have that that one so common yes that is so common and it makes total sense we'd like to talk her out of that this isn't a competition because what he's been seeing isn't real You'd have to go get, you know, a few different jobs done before you can compete with that. Because <laughs> what they're seeing is not real. Yeah. So you can't compete with the lack of reality. And so you won't ever be able to compete with that. What you're trying to do is establish something different. And you may not be comfortable being nude at first until you really feel the intimacy and the closeness. And the nudity. You know, what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, when they felt the distance from God, what did they do? They covered themselves. And when we are intimate with each other, that's when we can be totally free with our bodies with each other. You know, it's funny how hard that is, because I think people, before they're married, uh, think that that when they're married, they're just going to be running around nude all the time, and, you know, it's not a big deal yeah but that's a really intimate thing that's hard it is to do i mean mm-hmm. 
We hardly ever run around nude. Because <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> Never. We don't. Just, so I had a question. Um, Sorry, but you were funny, so you oh, forgot it. I know. It, sex toys. Oh, my. <laughs> How about that? Well, let's go there. All right, baby. <laughs> <laughs>